0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And today we're going to look once again at the closing verses in this 16th chapter. Uh, I assume by looking over the crowd this morning that most of you are saved. I recognize most of your, if not all of your faces, and uh, I know that most of you claim to know that you do know Jesus Christ as your Savior. But I also know that according to the Word of God, that there are many people who claim that they are Christians, but they really don't know Christ. And if you ever have a doubt about that, you can read the 7th chapter of Matthew and read that very closely and you'll find that there are many people who confess Christ who really don't know him personally as their Savior. And I think that we should be aware, and most of you are, I think, that being a Christian is more than just showing up for church... It's more than attending the services that we have here. It's more than being born in this nation that some people consider to be a Christian nation. It's more than being born into a Christian family because you're not a Christian by generation. You're a Christian by regeneration. True belief in Jesus Christ is a commitment to Jesus Christ as the Savior of your unworthy soul, And it's also a commitment to him as the Lord of your life, that you are going to give yourself to him and you're going to follow and give allegiance to Jesus Christ. And if you've not yet realized that, then I think that these verses that we're going to study today really... Are an eye opener because in these verses, Jesus shoots down what's being taught in the modern church today that Christianity is easy street, that it's simple to be a Christian, but Christianity is not for the faint of heart, it's not for those whose hearts have not been changed and strengthened. To live the type of life that Jesus Christ wants you to live. To go against all the things that the world throws at you. That the evil forces of Satan that come against you. Committing your life to Jesus Christ and knowing him is having that strength to live the kind of life that Jesus says in this passage. Now, if you look at Matthew 16, beginning at verse number 24, I'll ask you to stand with me once again as we read God's word. Matthew 16, verse number 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." Father, thank you that you brought us here today. I ask you, Lord, to open up our hearts to your word and help us to be attentive. Help us to realize what it is that you'd have us to know and to follow what you'd have us to know. And we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, we received a report from our missionary wilson Mongo. he's our missionary to east africa and he talked to us and sent a letter and even called me about the violence and the bloodshed that was taking place in the republic of congo and he asked for our prayers because there were churches there that are that are under fire there are churches that are under his care that some of the members have been killed by people in that country now, well, Pastor Boongo has experienced a great deal of trouble throughout his ministry. It seems every time that there is a national election in that part of the world, a national election in Kenya, that there's all kinds of violence and bloodshed that takes place. And the good Baptist churches that are there that are under his care are not exempt from all of the trouble that takes place. And I was thinking about that as I was preparing for this sermon today, and I began to compare the types of false doctrines that are taught in American churches today to the reality of what it means to be a Christian in a third world country. What is it like to be a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, in a place where personal freedoms are not top priority for people, where it's very difficult, where you can have things like this happen to you, where you can be killed for actually professing your faith in Jesus Christ? Now, we're told in this country by many preachers that Christianity is guaranteed success, that if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, that God wants you to live on easy street... That God wants you to have all the desires of your heart, no matter what they are, that God is there to be your genie to supply everything that you want. And we're told that those who live for Christ will have the favor of the world, that God intends no hardships for his people, that there is no suffering. There's nothing very difficult at all for those people who are determined to live their best life now. And so if we think positively, if we reach down inside of us, if we try to do our very best and try to pull out our very best, if we do our part, God will do his part and we'll have everything that our heart desires. But then I receive an email or I get a call from East Africa and the man who's on the other end of the line is a dedicated, godly missionary. He lives on a fraction of what we have in this country that only just recently was able to get electricity into his house. Who has trouble raising money to buy Bibles to give to his people. Who has difficulty supporting hundreds of orphans that he's trying to take care of and trying to house and to feed and to give a better life and to give them the message of Jesus Christ. This man that is so dedicated to the cause of Christ who has been willing to suffer many different things, not to have the things that we have, calls us and he begs for our prayers. And he asks us, will you pray for me? Will you ask God to help that we won't be killed and we'll be able to do the ministry that God has called us to do here. So what do I say to that man? Do I say to him, Well, you know, brother, if you had more faith, if you would reach down inside of you and you'd summon up a more positive attitude about what you're doing, if you would walk and with God and trust God a little bit more, you'll never have another worry. Where can I go in the Word of God... ...to prove a statement like that? Where can I go to show him that he is actually a failure... ...because he's not led his people into financial freedom? Where can I find a scripture to show... ...that he's missed the mark of what God intends for his life? You've just read the scripture with me. You've just seen what Jesus said. You've just heard the one who is Christianity... ...and he has given a description of the Christian life... It is not a life of ease. It is not a life of material gain. It is not a life of human favor. In fact, it's the opposite of all of those things. And that's why I say that Christianity is not for the faint of heart. This is not easy. Now, there are some Christians that have it easier than others. American Christians have it easier than Christians that are in East Africa. But folks, there is nothing in the Scriptures that promises you health, wealth, and prosperity. There's nothing in the Scripture that promises a Christian in this life will have the favor of the world or have anything other than suffering and hardships for the cause of Christ. And that's what Jesus teaches in this passage. Now, the first part of this message was a while ago. And we learned by looking at verse number 24 that there are laws of the Christian life. There are three imperatives in verse number 24 for biblical Christianity. And these are not optional requests. These are not things that Christ would love to see or he'd like to see. He'd like to find this in his disciples. But rather these are the rigid requirements to be obeyed as a Christian. And don't be confused by my statement. You don't become a Christian by doing these things. But this shows that your heart has truly been changed by Christ if you do this. That same principle is taught to us in the book of James, the letter of James. When James wrote, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, we covered three imperatives three weeks ago when I began this message. And perhaps those thoughts have grown cold, so I want to mention those to you again. There are three laws that we find in verse number 24 for Christians. And the first one is you must have a willingness to sacrifice self. The willingness to sacrifice self. Secondly, in that verse, we find your acceptance of the cross before the crown. And then thirdly, your faithfulness to follow Christ. Those are the three areas that are touched on by Jesus in verse 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now there we see first again that you must be willing to sacrifice self. You have to be willing to give up your selfish desires, those things that you use to promote your own welfare. And you have to understand that your desires no longer matter. That the big house that you're after, the big car that you're after, the best education you might have, the highest paying job, that is not really your right. It's not a right that God's going to give you. He may give you those things. But if he does, then you have to be sure that you use those for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. His whole life was Christ. He gave up all personal ambitions and he was willing to suffer the rigors of the Christian life, even if that meant prison and beatings and shipwrecks and robbers. He served Christ even when it meant that he was thrown into the arena with wild animals. That's the first imperative that Christ requires, is that we give up all to Christ. The second one is the acceptance, your acceptance of the cross before the crown. Jesus said you must take up your cross. Now the disciples, when Jesus said that, they had no visions in their mind of glorious martyrdom, if there is such a thing. They never thought of the romanticism of giving up their lives in the same manner that Christ gave his. And that's because Christ had not yet told them that His death would be the death of a cross. And yet, they were familiar with crosses. Not because they had some kind of a vision that Christ was going to die on the cross, but because they had seen crosses over and over and over again throughout the land of Israel. They'd seen thousands of Israelites that were led to their death, that were condemned to die on crosses. They carried their own crosses to the execution. And so when Jesus said, you must take up your cross, they didn't see glorious martyrdom. Instead, they saw the defeat of the earthly kingdom. They saw no kingdom is coming if we have to take up the cross. And that was very, very hard for them to understand. Later they, they discovered that bearing their cross meant that they must bear up under the reproach of Christ. That they were not to hide from the cross. They weren't to stay away from it. They, they, they weren't to look at it as the inevitable outcome of their Christianity. But they look at that as a positive thing. That we are willing to, to take up this cross that Christ has demanded. We don't stumble upon it. But rather we reach out for it and we take that. Because we do want the stigma of Christ to be our mark. The Apostle Paul, the great Apostle of the cross, said to the Corinthians, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now there Jesus, Paul and Jesus have shown us that far from expecting a life of ease, far from expecting our best life now, they renounced all the comforts of the world to gladly take the opposite. They took the worst because they knew in the end they would receive the best. They, they postponed the crown. They knew that it was coming and they would be exalted to reign with Christ. But before that crown, there had to be a cross. Then thirdly, verse number 24 gave us this imperative. That is, we must be faithful to follow Christ. And following him means a life of obedience. Discipleship and Christianity are synonymous terms. Those who are redeemed will follow Christ. Now let me tell you something. If your if your life is characterized by sin, then you need to check up on your faith. Following Christ is to become an imitator of him. It means to pattern your life after his. And I think that there may be some here. Some members of Berean Baptist Church that really do need to take an extensive inventory of their lives. And you can start with this. You can say, what did you do last night? And what did you do last week? List all of the things that you know that you did were wrong. And then list the things that you purposely did for Christ. And which side of that ledger is the longest? Where do you have the longest list? Well, these are laws of the Christian life. They're difficult. They're not the kinds of things that you tell people if you want them to be Christians. I mean, how are you going to convince someone that they should be a Christian when the promise that Jesus has here is self-denial? The promise is a cross, and the promise is God's will rather than your will. Well, he has an answer for us, and the answer... These perplexing problems are found in these next verses. These are the laws of the Christian life, but there are also there is also the preservation to eternal profit. Now here we begin with the advantages of self-denial and cross-bearing and obedient following. In verse 25, Jesus said, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is much pain that goes with Christianity, but there's also gain that comes from it. And so we have to ask the question, as I think anyone would, is it worth it? Is the pain worth the gain that we will receive? Is there enough value in coming to Christ and giving up everything that we are? What is the cost-benefit ratio of living his life rather than my life? Well, we'll stop about that. Stop and think about that for a minute. Take a few minutes to look at this. We need to answer those questions, and we have to, to, in order to do that, compare the value of what we have now and what it means to lose this life in order to gain the kind of life that Jesus is talking about in the passage. What kind of life do we gain when we follow Christ? And we find there's a very serious, uh, strange paradox that's presented in these verses. And to see them, you have to look at the parallels. And you see unexpected comparisons. And you'll notice here that losing your life in verse number 25 parallels gaining the whole world in verse 26. That's the paradox. And yet those two things are the same. And it means that gaining your life and gaining your soul is the same as losing all that the world has to offer. And I have to tell you, that sounds nothing at all like the prosperity gospel. If Jesus is right, and I think that he is, if you've gained the favor of the world, if your stock is in the world, if you have everything that the world has to offer and you've found favor with them, then you've lost whatever it is that Jesus promised. The result of verse 24 is the loss of life in verse 25, and the result of verse 24 is the opposite of gaining the whole world in verse number 26. So why should you want the loss that results from verse 24 rather than the gain that's found in verse 25? Well, let me give you the simple answer to that question. The answer is found in comparing one life to the other. What is the difference between these two types of life that Jesus is talking about? One life is actually death, and the other life is eternal with him. So what is the difference? Well, we start with this, that the difference is that the first life is temporary. If you try to save this life, if you want to gain the world, then you've put all of your hope in something that is sure to perish. Thousands of years ago... The pharaohs of Egypt built elaborate pyramids that they used as tombs, and they put all of their treasures into those tombs because they thought that they would be able to enjoy them in the afterlife. But now, these many thousands of years later, those treasures are still there. That is, those that haven't been stolen by grave robbers. And perhaps Jesus may have had that somewhat in mind, among other things, when he said in Matthew six nineteen, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, but where thieves break through and steal. Don't lay up your treasure here, because it'll be gone. For part of two thousand twelve, Apple, the company, the computer company, gadget company, Apple that we all love to have their devices. They became the most valuable company in the world for a, for a short time in the year of 2012. They, they, they surpassed Exxon as the world's most valuable company. In 2011, the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, died. And he was hailed as a great innovator. The fortunes of Apple were somewhat or largely tied to his, his vision for the company, and investors had their hope in him. But Steve Jobs died. What do you think it is that he wants more than anything right now? Do you think that right now Steve Jobs wants the wealth of Apple back under his control? Was all of the things that he had accumulated in his life, was that fulfilling? Was he satisfied then with what he had, and is he satisfied now? I haven't read his biography, but I've read little snippets and what people have said is contained in it, and I found that Steve Jobs thought nothing at all of Jesus Christ. He pretty much said, I tried it, but I didn't like it. What do you think he believes about Jesus Christ right now? In my time as pastor, I've been called on to officiate at many funerals. And thank the Lord most of them are or were funerals for people that were believers rather than unbelievers. But whether you're talking about an unbeliever or a believer, I have never come to a funeral, never been in a funeral where somebody stuffed their casket with stocks and bonds and all the money in their bank account and all their jewelry. I have never yet been to a funeral where the casket was lined with all of those kinds of things. Everything that you accumulate in this life is going to perish. It's never going to make it out. At best, all of it's temporary. And I'm sure you remember the story of how Jesus talked to a rich young man who came to him and asked him what he had to do to obtain eternal life. Jesus knew that that young man was rich and his confidence was in those riches and he knew that the only way that he could have uh, uh, tell him to have confidence in him and to have true faith in Jesus Christ was to give up all that he had to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor because those riches were the things that were holding him back from being what God wanted him to be, from the, from the, from the follower of Christ that he needed to be. That's where his trust was. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful because he had so many riches. He was not willing to forsake what was temporary in this life for the eternal that we have in heaven. James also wrote about that situation, and he summed it up this way. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in all his ways." Do I really need to tell you that life is short? Do you need me to explain that to you? Nobody really thinks about that, do they? Do they until they come to the time it's they're ready to die? Nobody thinks about the brevity of life. Talk to young people. Try to convince them that life is short. I look back on my own life and... I'm just amazed at how fast that it's gone by, that, that now, uh, that at the age that I am, if the actuarial tables are right, I have about 20 years to go. And that's it. That's all I'm done for the world. This life is temporary. But the blessedness of this passage is that it shows us there is something that is not temporary, because Jesus also talks about a life that is eternal. The next life is eternal. And that's a very difficult concept for us to get into our minds. How can we give up what we have right now to gain what is promised later? That is not the way that American Christians or anybody else thinks. We are used to instant gratification. We want it right now. I mean, if our internet has 15 megs down, we've got to have 25. I mean, we've got to have information so fast you can't even think about it anymore. Everything has to be satisfied right now. The prosperity movement in religion says the same thing. It says you can have it now. You don't have to wait on anything. God wants you to have it now. But that's not what Jesus says in this passage. The whole point of the passage is you can't have it now. In fact, the passage is telling us that whatever you gain right now is nothing compared to what will be given later. Now let's take our Bibles, if you would, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want you to see how the Apostle Paul dealt with this same question. He wrote to the Corinthians, and they were struggling with this issue of hardships. And they never really saw any relief in getting to the plane that Paul was living on. Paul really had nothing. And remember that he said that whatever state that I'm in, I've learned to be content. And they, they just were not getting to the place where Paul was living. Now, well, the modern prosperity movement would have you to believe that greater faith and being a better Christian equates with unparalleled favor from the world. But we notice how Paul addresses this. In verse 5 of Second Corinthians 4, he says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. You see something in that? That looks like self-denial, doesn't it? We're not preaching ourselves. We're giving up things so that we can do this for you. We are your servants. And that verse takes us back to Jesus' thoughts that disciples must take up their cross, that Paul was willing to bear the reproach of Christ, and that did not make him the great potentate of the church. What it made him was a servant, just like Jesus Christ was a servant. Verse number 6, he says, For God... Who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our heart in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power of uh, the power may be of God and not of us now pay close attention to the next verses and see if this sounds like prosperity preaching we are troubled on every side yet not distressed we are perplexed. But not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Again, look at what Paul says here. The body of the dying of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about crucifying self, taking up the cross. I read these things and I think of Wilson Maongo and these African Christians. They have no material goods and, and they often face death for their belief in Christ. Verse 12, so then death worketh in us, but life in you. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore I have spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now we look at the next verses, and this is where we see the temporary problems fade away into the eternal prosperity of heaven. He says in verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So how does a Christian keep going for Christ in the midst of all the pain and suffering, all the troubles that come? How do you bear up under that? How can you take up your cross? How can you sacrifice self for, for Christ? How can you do all of that when you know the flesh is going to suffer? Well, he gives us an answer here. You keep your eyes focused on what is eternal. And if you have grabbed for everything that you can in this life then you won't prosper in eternity. You'll suffer the loss of all of those things, but yet if you do seek the cross, and if you do dedicate yourself to that, if you seek the gain of the cross, then you will receive the rewards that come in the later life. And I'm always amazed by the Apostle Paul when he says things like this. When he went through all of the things that he went through, and yet he says here, it's light affliction. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So what is a real Christian? A real Christian is one who fixes his eyes on what lies beyond this life, And that's what it seems the prosperity preachers have not yet learned There is no value in what is gained in this world. If you get it all, if you get the very best the world has to offer, what do you get? There is no eternal value in it. It's it's the opposite of the type of life that Jesus said that you can expect. And so if you want to take up with curly-haired, smiling Joel Osteen instead of Jesus Christ, be my guest. And I'll wave bye-bye to you in the second coming. Now that brings me to my last thought for today, thirdly is the return to reward and I want to look very briefly at verses 27 and 28 because we're going to deal with these more at a later time and in these two verses Jesus completes the thought that would bring hope to a troubled group of disciples they were expecting the kingdom they hoped for it they were counting on it James and John had already figured out where they wanted to sit in God's kingdom and what areas of the world they wanted to rule over. So they had the utmost confidence that what Jesus would do at any moment was to stop all, all of this harassment against them, that he would, put, he, would, he would stop the mouths of the scribes and Pharisees who kept saying that Jesus was a devil. That's what they expected. But here, in the plainest of terms possible, he said, if you want the kingdom now, if you want the gain of the world now, then you can't have heaven later. And so he stuck a pin in their balloon. He, he deflated their hopes, and he left them with the prospects of bearing crosses and facing crucifixion. And you say, well, what a, what a crazy thing for Christ to do because he's leaving the disciples with no hope. Disciples with no hope are not good disciples. Disciples with no hope are not witnessing disciples. Disciples with no hope will not keep the church alive. They have to be given hope that the pain and the suffering is worth it all. They have to know and realize and believe that the pain is going to turn into the greatest gain. And you need to learn that too. If you are a dejected disciple of Jesus Christ and you're sitting there and you're worried and you're in pain over finances or, or worried over your family or worried over things that are taking place in your life and that's troubling you and weighing you down and you have all your focus on those things, if you have no hope, then you won't talk about Jesus Christ. You won't give the gospel to anyone. You won't give like you're supposed to give. You have to have your eyes on the eternal rather than what's here And so Jesus tells the disciples more. He wants to give them hope. And so he says in verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now since we're going to talk more about this in in the rest of the sermon, later sermons, let me give you two quick thoughts here as we try to finish up very quickly today. First, there is a day of accounting for all. Whichever you decide to do, whether it's to take what you can get from the world now and pass on the glories of Christ later, or if you decide to take up your cross now and to wait for the glory that comes later, either way, you will give an accounting to God. And if you decide to try for the gain of the world now... Then you're going to give an account to God for that. Now let's deal with that group of people first. The ones who decide, under this heading, we'll talk about those who decide to live for the gain of the world right now. Now I know that if you talk to people around us in our neighborhoods, your people that you work with, that just about everybody is of the opinion. That Christ loves everybody, that he's tolerant of everybody, that he just lets anybody do what they want to do. He's okay with, with what you want. There is no downside to doing what you want rather than what Christ says. If that's so, then what do you think he meant in verses 25 and 26 when he said, you will lose your life? And he says, you will lose your soul. What does he mean, lose your soul? What does he mean by exchanging something for your soul? Write this reference down. You can refer to it later. I'm not going to read it now. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And those verses speak of a great day of reckoning for those who are the selfish soul seekers. They are going to give an account to Jesus Christ. He is the righteous judge who sits on the great white throne. Now the thing about this... For those people, they don't have to worry about bringing their record with them when they appear for Jesus Christ, when they appear before Him. They don't have to bring all the record of the things that they did. He already knows that. He's already got that on the majestic mainframe in His courtroom. He's got all of that information. And He's going to bring up the record of everything that you did. He will see how hard that you pushed to get ahead in this life, how much attention that you focused on self, And then he'll see that cross that he laid out before you. And he'll see that you said, no, I think that I'll take my chances and I'll get what I can now. And whatever you have now is all that you'll ever get. And all of that's been left behind. But that's not all of the accounting that he has because he's not through with you. Because he has a record of all of your sins He knows everything that wasn't covered under the shadow of the cross and all of those things, every thought that you ever thought, every deed that you ever did is laid out naked and bare for all to see and all of it is counted against you and that passage tells us that those people who were the self-seekers are going to be thrown into the everlasting fires of hell. And do you remember this? The Bible says the soul is eternal. And so you've traded your eternal soul for the good time you could have here. You wanted the temporary without regard to the eternal. And so you'll have all of eternity to regret the decision. Hell is not temporary. Hell is forever. So that's the first group. They took the world now and they passed on the reproach of the cross. Well, we consider the second group. And this is the reward for the righteous. This group is the group of Jesus' true disciples. Now, they might have had trouble seeing the benefits of of waiting, but yet they listened to Jesus, and they believed in him. They picked up their cross, and they followed him. All the way through, they followed Christ. They did not get a taste of his glory right then. They waited for it to come later. They knew that it was coming. Jesus said it's coming. He said he's going to come in the glory of his fathers. He's going to bring the holy angels with him. And when he looks at Christians, and looks at all of these Christians that have taken up their cross, he'll see them bending beneath the load of that cross. And he'll see the trouble and the heartache and the pain that they've gone through. And he'll see those African Christians with nothing that the world has to offer. And they're being pursued by men with machine guns and machetes. And they give their lives for him. He sees all of that. And he'll also see the tireless worker of Berean Baptist Church who said, I will not give up. I'll teach my class every Sunday. I'll get to choir practice every week. I'll bring my tithes and my offerings and support God's work. I'll help others. I will give up the pursuit of riches and all of that to give everything that I can to Christ. These are ones who said, I will keep my job in this area. I will fight it out here even though it's very difficult in this economy because I know that this is where God wants me. And he'll see all of that. And he comes with reward and he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Folks, that promise is worth waiting for. Christ comes with a reward for the righteous. And the righteous are the true believers, they're the true followers, they are the true servants, they are the true lovers of Jesus Christ. These are ones that are not ashamed to bear the reproach of the cross. So when you get done reading Revelation twenty eleven through 15, stick around. Read the rest of it. Go all the way to the end of the book and there you see the amazing glories that are reserved for those who are the children of God. The inheritance of the kingdom of God. Is it worth it? Well, if I have to convince you that it's worth it, then you need to be saved. You need to go back to the cross. You need to come and bow before the cross once again if you have not understood that what you give up in this life is well worth the riches that you gain in Jesus Christ. If you're willing to take the suffering now, the Word of God says you will receive the glories of Christ later. Now, we noticed in previous lessons that Peter had difficulty with this. At first, he had great difficulty. He didn't want suffering. He didn't want Christ to suffer. And Jesus said to him, Well, Peter, you're thinking like man. You're not thinking like God. And then later, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he got his thinking straightened out, and he accepted cross-bearing. He got things right in his mind. And so he wrote in First Peter chapter 1, he said that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. There is suffering. Faith is tried. Keeping the faith is hard. He said keeping the faith is like going through a refiner's fire. It's very difficult. It's painful for us, but the fruit of that is found in the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ at his appearing. He says in verse 8, Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Do you see that? Here is what taking the self-sacrifice, doing the cross-bearing, the faithful following, what do you get from that? You get the purpose, which is the salvation of your souls. Jesus is coming in the glory of the Father. He brings with Him a reward for the righteous, and it's wonderful for us to look forward to that. But Jesus goes even further in this passage. Verse number 28 Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus didn't want the disciples in despair, and so he adds one more statement to this discourse that he has about suffering and pain, living for this righteous cause, the difficulty of it. He said to them, Some of you are going to see a little bit of my glory. I'm going to give you a preview of my glorious kingdom. Now that is a subject for later. We're not going to get into that today. Some of them would not die until they had seen Christ in his glory. So they were deflated with all this talk about suffering. They were bruised from having this bur- bubble burst of the immediate kingdom. How can they be sure that the glory of Christ and the kingdom is real? Jesus said to them, you, you just wait just a little bit and you will see the glory of the kingdom. I'm going to stop there. Do you know what Pastor Mongo knows about serving Christ? Do you know what that missionary knows about serving Christ in that very difficult part of the world of East Africa? He knows that there is no gain without the pain. He didn't send us letters and make phone calls to tell us, you know something, I'm going to quit. If you don't... If you don't pray for me, if you don't do something for me, if you don't send something to me, I'm going to quit because it can't be worth all the pain and suffering that I'm going through. Ask Gary. Did he ever say that to you? Never once would he say that to him. He wanted us to pray because he wanted to keep his faith strong because he was going to keep on going no matter what happens. He keeps preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, I remember when he was here that he preached from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. And we have to remember that. No matter what happens, no matter what goes on, no matter what comes to us, we must keep preaching this message. We must keep preaching the cross. And you know why? Because that is the only way that people can be reconciled to God. It's the only way. And so if you're not reconciled to him, and if you are looking to gain the world, Jesus says you'll lose your soul. Go home and think about that. Even if you think that you are a Christian, go back home and think about that. Are you really a Christian? What will you give in exchange for your soul? And I think some of you have already made that decision. Based on the ledger that I asked you to make out earlier on the list there, you should be able to determine from that where you stand with Jesus Christ. How much did you deliberately do for Jesus Christ last week? And how much did you do for yourself? Somewhere in there, somewhere in there, is eternal life. Somewhere in there, is going to tell you whether you are really a true Christian. And I hope that you'll make that list and you'll look at it and see where am I spending my time? Where am I spending my efforts? What am I really looking for? Is it Jesus Christ or is it to serve me? And Jesus said you can't have both. You can't serve self and serve him. It can't happen. Somewhere in there is eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word we thank you lord for what jesus has said here it's hard it's very very hard to look at this passage of scripture and 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 see what jesus actually promised to christian people how difficult that the christian life would be if we are living for you as we should live these hardships are going to come to us and we shouldn't be running away from them we shouldn't be trying to avoid the hardships but rather take what comes and and, uh, reach out willingly to even create reproach for the cross. Because if we haven't, we haven't really done anything. The world hates Christ. And we need to understand that. If we're not hated by the world, then we haven't done anything for Christ. So I ask you, Lord, speak to our hearts. Let us look at that list. What did we do for ourselves and what do we do for you? Help us to look at that closely and see if we truly know you as Savior. Bless our people, Lord. We pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ as Savior, that they would come to you today and your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and convict them, bring them to faith in Christ. And then for Christians that are here that are living on the edge and struggling with all of this, may they see this life temporary. There is temporary. There is great gain that will come out of all the pain that we have in this life. We just have to keep serving you. Bless us, Lord, as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928.